Well, good morning, family. It is so good to be with you this morning. I missed you last week. I had to leave at a late notice at the end of the week to go take care of some family things. And uh, I appreciate so much uh, Brother Andy stepping in and and uh, bringing the message last Sunday. And and uh, but I missed you, but was able to join on through that marvel of the of the internet. Uh, was able to join with the live stream and and participate with you as we worshiped together last week. We're beginning a new series this morning, a new series of studies in the book of First Peter. So I'll encourage you to take your Bible out and turn to the book of First Peter. And as we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful this morning for this time together. What a blessing the body of Christ is. What a blessing the Lord's Day is where we have the opportunity uh, to gather together in to come together even in freedom and security and and uh, join with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is for so many of us a highlight of our of our week to come with the people that we hold dear in our hearts and together to come into your presence. What a great day this is. And to gather around your word and to hear from you. And I pray that is what will happen in these moments that already through the through the songs we have sung and the scripture as we've heard it and the participation in the Lord's Supper that we have been refreshed, we've been encouraged, we've been challenged. And we've heard from you. May you continue to speak and may our, our ears be listening as we come now and read together and dig into your word. So we commit ourselves, we commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Like any good introduction, when we come to the first opening words here in the book of First Peter, it gives us some important information. It's going to, we're going to see in, in a moment who the writer is, who the audience is, and what the purpose of this book is. And I pray by the time we're done this morning that you will see why this is such an important study for us. And I hope it will excite you to hear the rest of what the Lord has to say in this book. I have already been enjoying my study of it as we've been getting ready for this. We begin verse 1, chapter 1 of First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see obviously that the author of this book, of course by the title and now here in the first verse, it's the Apostle Peter. But as we move on to the audience for this letter, we are confronted with a paradox. The paradox, a paradox is something that seems contradictory even absurd on the surface, and yet is true. 
And there are two key words here in these opening verses that form this paradox. The first of these words there in verse 1 is that word elect. Now that, the whole subject of election is a sermon in itself. And, and one thing we're going to find in this book, we're, we're going to race through it, uh, even doing it in 11 weeks. We'll be moving past their deep theological things here, but I'm hoping that we won't get lost in the deep theology, and which is important, but we don't have the time to get into all of that here on these Sunday mornings. But to see the big messages that are here in this book. And he begins here saying that the audience is people who are elect, the, the chosen, the specially selected, and chosen by whom, we might ask. Well, verse 2 makes it very clear. Elect or chosen by God the Father. He has chosen them. In other words, Peter is writing to Christians. God's selected, God's chosen, God's beloved children. And the second word of this paradox is found right next to that word. It is the word exiles. These folks are God's elect, His chosen, His special people, but they are also exiles. Other words that other translations use for this, the New American Standard translates this word as aliens. The New International Version translates this word as, as strangers. The New King James translates this word exile as pilgrims. See, the Greek word that they're trying to translate encompasses two concepts. The first is this. They're foreigners, people who aren't from around here, people who don't belong here. That's, that's one concept, a foreigner. The other concept this word conveys is one of a temporary residence. In other words, this isn't their long-term home. This isn't their, their real home. It's not where they plan to stay for a long time. It's a temporary place. And he says that these exiles are scattered. The word there is diaspora, and it could be, in some translations, it's capitalized. In that case, the Jews are thinking of the, the great dispersion of the Babylonian captivity. I think it's used more generally than that. But he says that these folks are scattered through five provinces in the Roman Empire. They're in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's a region that today comprises what we would think of as Turkey or Asia Minor. And we wonder, why is he calling these people exiles? And it could be that he's referring to his reader's physical situation that some of his readers may have been those who fled from Rome uh, about a decade or so before this when Emperor Claudius banished all the Jews from Rome. That could be why these folks are exiles. Or it could be that he's referring to Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, who fled Jerusalem and fled Israel because of persecution from the religious leaders there. Or there are other theories out there. Could be referring to folks who are physically exiles, physically refugees. Or... And I think more likely, Peter is using the word exile here to refer to his reader's spiritual situation. Since these people, these, these folks have become believers of Jesus, in Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, they have now 
find themselves being strangers in their own land, exiles in their own hometown. Because as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says that our citizenship now as Christians, as followers of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are now just temporary residents on planet Earth. This isn't our real home. Our real home and our real citizenship is in heaven. And we're awaiting our King. And we're awaiting His kingdom. And so, in that case, these folks, as every Christian has become a foreigner without ever having to leave home. They're no longer, they no longer fit in with their unsaved neighbors, their unsaved friends. They, they now have a, they, they don't fit in with the old way of thinking. They don't fit in with the old way of living. They don't, they have different values now. They have different morals now. They have different perspectives. They have different aspirations. They have different goals. And so, because of that, they find themselves regarded now by many unbelievers as weird, as strange, as outcasts. Now, here's the paradox. Here are people who are God's chosen, God's elected, God's special people. And yet they find themselves living as misfits and outcasts in their world. And as we'll soon discover in this book, many of them are in severe distress. They are undergoing severe suffering. How do those two things fit together? Elect, chosen, special, God's special people, and yet suffering outcasts and misfits. How do those two possibly fit? Well, if you were here last week, that was the message in Psalm 73 as Asaph was, was wondering that question. How come the wicked prosper and the righteous people are suffering? Brother Andy, Andy brought a great message on that last week. It really is in some way the same question as something that, that I'm sure these believers were wrestling with, these young believers in Jesus Christ, and is something that many of us wrestle with even today. Where is God when we as His people, when I as His child am suffering? Where is God? The reality is, in America today, you and I may not be on the run for our lives. Probably we aren't. You and I, in America today, probably do not face and will not face imprisonment or beating or confiscation of our property because we are followers of Jesus Christ. The reality is, Many of our brothers and sisters, hundreds of thousands, literally, of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today face that as a continual threat day in, day out. Any day the hammer can fall. And they are beaten, they are imprisoned, they lose their property or they lose their life. 
This book is especially relevant to them. While many of us don't face those things, many of us have struggled with being falsely accused or having our character assassinated, our character maligned by lies and slander or have had to deal with unjust authorities or have had to deal with Problems at work because of an unfair and difficult boss. Or some of us have been stuck in a bad marriage, a difficult marriage. Or some of us have had a spouse who doesn't share your love for Jesus Christ. Some of us have had people think that you're weird and many of you are. <laughs> but think you're weird or misfits because you won't join in with some sinful behavior or other. Every one of these are situations that Peter addresses, specific situations that he knows these people are dealing with. And they are very things that we deal with, many of us. And if not now, perhaps Sometime later, all of us have had suffering of some sort or other. And Peter writes to hurting and struggling believers, many of them hurting and struggling precisely because they are believers in Jesus Christ. And he says, the end of verse 2 there, may grace and peace be with you. I think that little sentence is the very purpose behind this letter. Peter's desire is that these struggling followers of Christ, these struggling Christians, might be filled with the knowledge and the experience of God's grace in their life to such a point that they have peace even in the middle of turmoil, even in the middle of a hostile environment. See, the question is, how do we survive? How do we even thrive in a hostile world? And the answer to that question, I think, from this book is this. It's by standing firm in God's grace. You might wonder, well, Pastor, that's an awful lot to get from those little two verses. And maybe that just maybe you're reading a little too much into what could be just a cliche, you know, may grace and peace be with you. <laughs> I mean, we use that kind of stuff all the time. Hey, what's up? Not much, you know. I did that this morning on my way into church. I, a brother greeted me on the way in and um, said, you know, uh, hey, how you doing, you know. And he says, fine, how are you? And I said, fine, thanks. And I said, how are you? And it hit me as I walk, and he's just, he didn't really answer. And I, going on, I realized he had already answered me. And uh, obviously, I wasn't paying very close attention. And you see, those words just tumble off our lips. And maybe that's what Peter is doing here. He's just writing a letter. Hey, to the folks there in those uh, scattered throughout those five provinces, may grace and peace be with you. 
And you might think that until you read the book. And then you get to the second from the last verse. And you can turn there where he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's not a very long book. But he's saying in this short little book, I have declared here is the true grace of God. So what's he writing about in the book? The grace of God. And what's the purpose? So you'll stand firm in it. Why? Because you need it. If you're going to survive and if you're going to thrive in a hostile world. And as the culture around us today grows increasingly hostile to the truth of God's Word, have you noticed that in our culture? Those of us who have been around a few decades, our culture is becoming much more hostile to what we say we believe. I'm not a prophet, but it would not surprise me if in the not-too-distant future, That the persecution that we see around the world towards our brothers and sisters in Christ comes home to roost here. And if it does, brothers and sisters, we need to be prepared and know what do you do? When we are used to living in a life of prosperity and ease and freedom and the worst thing is that people think we're a little weird What do we do when the heat gets turned up and the suffering starts? That's why this message is significant, is as significant for us today as it was when Peter penned it almost 2,000 years ago. Peter moves on. Verse 3, he gives a great declaration. Of praise. Look, there verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, I imagine Peter, he was, Peter was no wimp. He was a fisherman, which only the tough guys could do that work. You had to be super strong and you had to weather the elements. He was a pretty tough guy. And he was also, we know his personality, if you've read much of the scripture, he was a big brash guy. He was always speaking out. And I imagine when Peter's, in, when you read a letter somebody wrote, do you hear their voice in your, I do. And I imagine that the people that knew him would hear him. And I imagine when Peter would talk, if he was saying this person, he'd be like, for those of us who know Dave Richter, if Dave may be watching, uh, he'd be like, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That I think was Peter. The point here is that Peter, when he begins, he doesn't start off saying, Oh, brothers and sisters, I know how hard life is for you right now. I've gotten some reports about what's going on and start naming people, naming cities and naming stuff. And I'm hearing reports of this and that. And that's probably the way I would write the letter. But he starts off, he doesn't go to their problem. He starts focusing on God. Key lesson there for us. Where do we start when the heat turns up? Focus on God, not your problems. When we put God first, 
and we put our focus on Him, we can see our problems through a right perspective. But when we start with our problems, the reality is our problems may very often keep us from seeing God at all. So Peter starts off a great lesson for us to learn. Write it down and tuck it away when you need it. When the heat turns up, focus on God rather than your problems. And you'll get a right perspective. And then Peter draws our attention to three gifts that God has given to us, which are important if we are going to live and thrive in a hostile world. Back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First gift that God has given to us, we have a living hope. We have a tendency as Christians to go and we come to the Bible and we read something and we get a little nugget of truth and what we do with it is we take that little theological truth and we file it away in a rusty filing cabinet in some dark, dusty corner of our brain. That's not a living hope. (laughs) That's a theological hope. God has given to us a living hope. A living hope is a hope that's active and alive. It is a hope that lives in our life. It fuels us. It sustains us. It it moves us. It drives us. There are three realities about this hope. This hope is because of God's mercy. He says here that, that according to God's mercy... You see, we were, we were sinners destined for hell. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Because we are all sinners, we've gained the wages of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It's hell. That's what we have earned. Every one of us was destined for hell. There was nothing that we had no worth to claim and no works that we could do that could in any way save us. We were helpless and hopeless, but God in his rich mercy intervened and he saved us. And oh my goodness, there's a depth of riches here we can't delve into. But we go back to verse one and what we realize is in the first first two verses is God did it all. It says God, the father chose us. He elected us. God the Holy Spirit sanctified us. God the Son, Jesus, paid for it with His blood. All of God. God is a triune God. One God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you understand it? No, I don't either. But it's reality. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were involved in our, in saving us. And He did it by our mercy, not by our works, and not by our worthiness. It's all His mercy. All we could do is throw ourselves upon His mercy and receive the grace He offers to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. As Acts chapter 16 verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And what we learn is we're not only not saved by our works, even the faith we have to believe in Jesus is a gift of God. It's all God's work. It's 
all by His mercy, and it should cause us to marvel at why does God love you that much that He sent Jesus to die for you? And I have no answer to that question. And I have no answer to the question, why does God love me so much that Jesus died for me? What a marvel that God gives such grace to undeserving, rebellious sinners like us. It's God's mercy. This living hope is by God's mercy. It also comes through a new birth. He says that God has caused us again. God does it. God has caused us to be born again. To be born again into this living hope. And He accomplished that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The old is gone. It says the new has come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Wow, you got a clean slate. The past has been erased. More than that, we have the righteousness of Christ has been put upon us. When God sees us, He doesn't see the sinners we were, even the sinners we are. He sees the righteousness of Christ upon us all through the new birth. The third truth about this living hope by God's mercy, it's through a new birth, and it comes with an eternal inheritance. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says we've been born again to, this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not just enough that God rescued us from hell. He gives us an eternal inheritance. The words that describe it, they are imperishable. It will never run out. It never comes to an end. It's eternal. It says it's undefiled. It means it's perfect. It's not tainted. It doesn't have problems, flaws. doesn't need a reboot. doesn't need an update. It never breaks down. Our inheritance is unfading. It will never get old. It will never get worn out. It will never get boring. Always fresh and new. Exciting. He says, it's kept in heaven for you. When I found out at the end of last week that I needed to make this trip, I was getting on quickly looking online, trying to, to make some arrangements that needed to be made. Have you ever made a reservation online? for an airline or a hotel room, and you'd never talk to a person, and you're wondering, am I going to get there? And they're going to say, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, it's been bad enough where I've ordered food, and you order at the wrong restaurant, and you show up, and no, that was over at some other place. But when it's at a hotel, and it's in a wrong city, or with the wrong airline, or a wrong, you know what? Oh, goodness. But here he says, You've got a reservation that's confirmed. Kept in heaven for you. And notice he says, it's guarded. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith? You know what he's saying? He's not saying your inheritance is guarded. He says you are guarded. And you know what he means there? You are guarded so that nobody can take your inheritance away from you and nobody can thwart God's plans for you. Wow, that's your inheritance. It's guaranteed, it's eternal, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and God is protecting you so that nobody can ever thwart His plans for you. That's marvelous. And He goes on, it's ready to be revealed. You can't see it yet, but it's very real, and it's coming. That's our living hope. 
Now we come to the second gift that we received, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, in, that he, in the inheritance and the living hope. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Wow, it's a mouthful of stuff and we could do a whole other sermon or two on that. But let me just tell you what it is. Here's the second gift. We have a living hope. And He says here, we have a joy, a transcending joy, a joy that transcends and surpasses whatever problems you've got in your life. You've got a joy resident in you through this living hope that can overcome those sorrows, that can supersede those troubles. Reality in that, yes, you will have trouble. You will. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have persecution, the Scripture says. But how do we have joy in the midst of those Troubles and persecutions and difficulties. A bunch of different words there, little phrases. I'll just run through some of them. Notice important words. A little while. Whatever troubles you have, it's for a short time. Now, a short time might be 20 or 30 years. That's a short time compared to eternity. It's a short time compared to the inheritance and the joys that are awaiting. It may be a long time in this world, but they're only temporary. There will be an end. And he says, not only that, he says, for a little while, and then notice the next two words, if necessary. And what I see from that is God does not needlessly allow any of His beloved elect children to suffer. He doesn't say you won't suffer. Matter of fact, He says He will. But he, when you do suffer, there is always a purpose. It is necessary. There's a lot of things that you and I subject ourselves to that we don't like because we, dis- we deem them necessary. Shots. Who likes shots? Nobody. Exercise. <laughs> we subject ourselves to that. Why? Because it's necessary. We do a lot of things that aren't pleasant, but they're necessary. And God loves us so much, He will not allow suffering into your life unless it is necessary. I notice this. It says, you have been grieved. Again, the trials, the troubles that you experience, God is saying here, they are not pleasant. He gets it. This is not fun. Matter of fact, it may hurt, and it may hurt a lot. Do you hate it when the doctor says, now this is going to sting a little? Yeah, he never over-exaggerates. He knows it says various trials. Not everyone experiences the same type of trials, the same type of suffering. Not everyone experiences the same quantity of suffering. Not everyone experiences the same severity of suffering. Some brothers and sisters in Christ endure a lot of suffering and very deep suffering. Others endure very little suffering and very shallow suffering. Why? I don't know. But God says it's only for a little while and only if necessary And he goes on, and he says, so that the tested, that word there, tested, trials we learn here are 
tests. Not tests like the ones that we had in algebra class and in in chemistry, which are designed to make some of us fail. (laughs) These are tests that, and he uses an illustration here, these are designed to reveal and to purify our faith. And he uses gold here as an example. Gold, he says, is something that perishes. Gold is something that is temporal. One day when all of this earth is destroyed... The Bible says the only two things are in this world that last forever, the souls of men and the word of God. Gold will be destroyed. But for right now, gold is one of the most precious things we know, right? And he says gold goes into the fire. Why does a goldsmith put gold into the fire? It's for the purpose not to destroy it. It is for the purpose of removing impurities to make it more beautiful and to make it more valuable. And the goldsmith puts the gold into the fire and the gold melts. And as the gold melts, the impurities rise to the top. And as the impurities rise to the top, the goldsmith scrapes away, he skims away the impurities. And from what I hear, what I read, that the goldsmith does that. He continues to put the gold to the heat, continues to skim the impurities until he can look in the gold and what he sees is a perfect reflection of his face. And then he knows it's done. And may I say the Apostle Peter very deliberately and intentionally is using gold for that picture for you and I because he says that's what God is doing with us in our sufferings. God is putting us to the test, not so that we'll fail, but to the test to to polish our faith, to, to remove the impurities, to purify it, to make it more beautiful so that when he is done, he looks and what he sees in us is a reflection of the beauty of the face of Jesus Christ. And then that results, as he says at the end of that verse, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another important word in those verses is the word love. Our trials, also what they do is they have the effect of driving us closer to Jesus, to know him better and to love him more dearly. That's why the Apostle Paul, back in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, he says, that I may know Him, talking about Jesus, and he goes on to say, the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul is saying, I want to suffer for Jesus. Why? Because it draws me closer to Him. You see, and and I've heard this, I've read this in, in other biographies, and I've heard it from a number of you. In times in your life where you have gone through the deepest, darkest pits, the, the darkest, deepest valley, it's in those times that I've heard some of you come back and say, it's in those times that I got closest to Jesus. It's when I felt His presence most in my life. Suffering has that effect, and that is one of the great blessings, one of the great joys of suffering. None of us want suffering But I've heard many people say, I would never, now having gone through that suffering, I would never want to miss that because that's when I learned how to love Jesus more. And I felt His love for me at the most. Love. Notice this little word He goes on in in verse 9. He talks about the outcome. The outcome of this. We can have joy that God in through these difficult times, through these sufferings, through these trials, 
He is working for a purpose. There is an outcome that God is aiming for. And that outcome, he says here, is our salvation. It's not that our salvation is earned by us going through the trials. That's not it at all. Pastor Aaron touched on this earlier during communion, that our salvation has different tenses to it. And I'm, I'm using tenses in the grammatical sense. Those of us who had English or some other language and we learn about verbs have tenses like past and present and future. And our salvation has three tenses to it. When you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are saved. That is something that the day you put your trust in Christ, you are saved at that moment. And that's a moment in the past for most of us. By the way, if you're here today and haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, I urge you to do that today. But that happened at a moment in time. And the Bible says we are saved. And at that moment, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. We have been delivered out of darkness into light. We have been delivered from death to life. Our salvation happened then, and it is secure. But at the same time, we have a salvation that is ongoing now in the present. We now are being saved as day by day we are sanctified and made more like Jesus. That whole aspect of what's going on during the trials and during the suffering as we begin to reflect Jesus more clearly. And then there's a day coming. A day the Bible says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when we come face to face with Jesus Christ, and we're going to be changed. And finally, everything that we have been declared to be, we will be in reality. Our salvation will be realized. When in a moment we will no longer be the sinful people we are now. We will no longer be the, the mortal people we are now. We will no longer have this body of sin and death, but we will be transformed and we will be like Christ in His character and we will step into the glories of our inheritance. There's a future coming. That's what's referred to here when He talks about our salvation and its outcome. There's a third gift. These realities fill us with joy even in the midst of trials. The third gift that we've received in our passage we find in verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Boy, that's a mouthful. The last gift God has given. We have a wondrous salvation. It's a mouthful of these things. You know, many of us will drive hundreds, even thousands of miles to go and to ooh and to ah over the mountains of Colorado or the wonders of the Grand Canyon or the ocean at the beach. And we'll sit there for hours. Wow. Right? And then if you ever take a look when you're there, take a look around and look at the people who live there and they don't even notice. 
Yeah, it's mountains. Yeah, it's a canyon. Yeah, it's an ocean. You're like, whoa! No, look! You know, know, very sadly, many of us who grew up in church, many of us who have been Christians a while, likewise have become numb to the wonder of salvation. As soon as the pastor starts to talk about the gospel, you can see it in the eyes of people. Their eyes glaze over. Well, here we go again. Yeah, I know, we're sinners desperately in need. We're going for hell. God sent His Son, Jesus. God became man, took on the form of man, died on a cross for our sin, was resurrected from the dead, and uh, He's coming again. Oh, yeah. Can we get to a song? (laughs) We become numb. But the truth that, that... These truths caused the ancient prophets, he said, much heartburn. As they're writing down the prophecies, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, Ezekiel, they're writing down these prophecies and going, Oh, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. And they're frustrated and they're wanting to understand. And God's saying, look guys, you won't get it. Stop pulling your hair out. They're searching the other Scriptures. They're trying to figure out, how does this fit? And you and I, on this side of the cross, we look back and we go, yeah, look at there. Hundreds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament written by all these different guys over hundreds and hundreds of years all come together, woven together in the person of Jesus Christ into this beautiful, ornate, intricate plan of God. And we look at it and go, we can see it so plainly that we take it for granted and we yawn. But if that weren't enough, the last line of verse 12 blows me away. Things into which angels long to look. It wasn't just the prophets. He says the angels are sitting up there scratching their heads. Going, oh. And notice it doesn't say the angels longed, past tense, to look. It says they longed to look. It's not that they're just scratching their heads over the things in the past that God did back then. They're still scratching their heads over what He is doing right now. The angels are right now looking around and going, Do you get it? I don't get it. Why does God love him? (laughs) Do you get it? Look at what a mess up they are. How can God care about them? How can God have a plan for them? They can never do anything right. (laughs) What do you think they say about you and me? (sighs) They're wondering, how in the world can God use a screw-up like Keith Spock? I don't know. Why does God love him? I don't have a clue. He is the mercy and grace of God. And those things are amazing. God's plan is so marvelous and is so gracious and it should cause us to wonder. So why do we get bored with it? It's because we've stopped looking. So as I wrap this up, brothers and sisters, we think we know the story. So we tend to zone out. How we need to start looking again and start marveling 
to take a clue from the prophets and the angels and look into these things more continually. God has given to us a living hope. He's given to us a transcending joy. He's given to us a wondrous salvation so that we might thrive as elect exiles, even in a hostile world. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous thing. Marvelous truths. We're so grateful that you love us so much. Father, the reality is we're not nearly as grateful as we ought to be because we've stopped looking. I pray that if nothing else this morning would cause us to go back and look. To understand what a gracious and good God you are. And may it transform us. May it fill us with joy. May it fill us with hope. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.